Is this on? There we go. Good morning to everyone. Before we get started uh, this morning, Tim mentioned it in his prayer, and I think, it, I think it's in the bulletin, uh, but we are having a church family supper, potluck barbecue at our farm this afternoon, uh, just outside of Blumenort, and if you feel uh, like you're too new here and you maybe shouldn't be coming, then I would just remind you that we're all new here. So if you are here this morning, you are welcome to join us for uh, an afternoon of fellowship. Uh, we are just west of Blumenort, right on the 311. Plemark Holstein's on the sign. Uh, we'll have some games and activities for the younger folks at around 3, and then supper's at 5.30. And so again, if you are here, you are welcome to join us. Me and Don were also talking a bit when we were in the back here how I'd like to fancy myself as a fairly young guy, and I, of course I am, but <laughs> but uh, I have to say it does feel good to be one of the older set here. I really have to say that uh, there are kids and there are young families, and that is wonderful. Uh, and one of the things that we want to encourage as a church family not only is warmth and hospitality and fellowship for each other, uh, but also to train our children well. We don't want this to be a, a, something that goes with fits and starts. Part of our dream, part of our vision uh, as a church is an intergenerational succession of the faith. And we've talked about some of that. Why do we do family integrated worship? And Lord willing, once we have a building, uh, and we're able to do Sunday school will be wonderful, but the plan will still be to involve children in the Sunday morning worship because I think it's, it's important. Part of that has to happen at home. We, uh, of course, Sunday morning is important. God calls us to be together on Sunday morning. Uh, but really, family discipleship is important that it happens every day of the week so that we know that this is important, that we teach our children the things of God. Uh, and so one thing we want to encourage in that vein uh, as a church is family devotions, family worship time, reading of scripture, talking about the things of God. Um, and we have just received our first shipment of Table Talk magazines. Uh, we have a subscription, I think, of five or six volumes. I th if they're not on the back, they will be later. Um, and so if you are interested in resources for family discipleship, family worship, family devotions, whatever you call it, uh, please take one of these. If you want your own subscription, that's fine. We've got a limited number of subscription here as a church, so take it. Uh, if you grew up with something like the Daily Bread, this is a pretty similar format. Uh, there's a daily devotional, a scripture reading, um, and then an explanation and application uh, on all of it. It's a bit beefier, though, in terms of the devotionals are uh, probably a little more in-depth. And there's articles uh, that run alongside the daily devotions. So this month, the theme is the doctrine of man. Um, and so again, if you are looking for resources, this is sound, biblical, trustworthy resources uh, that you can use for your own family devotions. And so I would encourage you to pick one up. Or if you have questions, come talk to one of us. Um, and if you want your own subscription, it's available through uh, Ligonier Ministries. Um, so you can find that online as well. So we'll leave that there. We are almost complete with our summer psalm series before we move on into the Gospel of Matthew this fall. We've got today and then one more. Uh, and so today that puts us in Psalm 9. So I'll ask you to open your Bibles there. And once you're there, then I'll ask you out of reverence to stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 9, and these are the words of our Lord. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. 
I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on my throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in a pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And may God bless the reading of his word. Be seated. On the morning of February the 24th, 2016, we had something potentially catastrophic happen in our family. Uh, Our kids were quite small six years ago, and they went out to the bus. uh, And as the bus driver waved them across, they started to cross. They have to cross the road uh, to get into the bus door on the opposite shoulder. And as that was happening, it was icy, and it had been a bit stormy the day before, Uh, and a vehicle was on the right-hand side of the bus, passing along, unable to stop. And the bus driver saw it and honked on the horn and yelled at our kids to stop, and Clint was about this far, and that vehicle came by, missing him by about that much. And we were very thankful that everyone was fine, nothing bad happened, but it was one of those things that was so close, it makes you think about it, makes you think how fragile our lives are, and what happened. And naturally, everything was fine, and and you move on with life. But it wasn't long afterward, my parents-in-law, who are wonderful, godly people and wonderful neighbors, told us how we need to do a better job of remembering answered prayer, right? Our problems are behind us in this case, and so we just forget about it. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to fix. Everyone's fine. Get on with life. Uh, But my father-in-law in in particular told me every morning when him and mom are having their coffee and their breakfast that they pray for the safety of their grandchildren. And God answered in a very clear way that morning. He's answered it every morning so far. But in that instance, you see how clearly he answered it because it's a matter of inches. And it struck me and it stuck with me how we need to remember God's faithfulness. We need to be intentional about remembering those things 
uh, that clearly stand out to us, that God has been faithful to us, uh, God is working for our good, he is kind, uh, and he answers prayer. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, is that we remember, that we are intentional about remembering God's kindness to us and the way he is working for our ultimate good at all times, whether we see it clearly, as in the story I shared, or whether we don't see it so clearly. Sometimes it looks like everything continues to fall apart, and God is still answering. God is still working for our ultimate good. Remembering is an important thing, and in some ways it's built into our calendars, right? We celebrate birthdays, uh, we celebrate Remembrance Day, we celebrate anniversaries, and then as Christians, of course, there's certain events on the Christian calendar that are important for us, and there's five in particular that we tend to celebrate as Christians, and that's Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension Day, and Pentecost. We don't celebrate those last two as much as we should, but they are also very important. And so we even have things built into our calendar that help us to remember God's faithfulness, what God is doing. When you read your Old Testament and you see the repeated idolatry of God's people, one of the things that God often corrects them with is to tell them to remember. A, a large part of their disobedience is a failure to remember, a failure to think through uh, and keep in front of them what God has done, how he has been faithful. And if you're like me, it's easy to sneer at the Israelites and think, well, how forgetful are they? And then I just turn it on myself. How forgetful am I? How many times has God stepped into my life in a drastic way, in a memorable way, and then it's just forgotten, right? I'm thankful for three weeks, and then I forget. We're all like that. We're all like Israel in that sense. And so we need reminders. We need things built into our lives to help us with this cycle of remembering, with this rhythm of remembering. We do it, we've talked about it here too. Why do we do covenant renewal worship, the five C's in your bulletin? It's to help get that rhythm into us every week. God's law condemns us, and every week his gospel brings us back to life. We need to remember that. This is the pattern uh, of doing it. This is what communion is, is, especially as we move into winter and more regular communion observance. Communion is one of those things that God uses tangible, physical elements to help us remember, to remember his faithfulness, to remember his kindness to us. And so, whether on a large scale, like reading our Old Testament, or on a smaller scale, like recalling your family stories around the dining room table, uh, stories, remembering, history, helps to give us and our children a sense of identity, of history, and where we belong in the big story. These things are important. And this is especially true for Christian parents who want to be intentional about seeing the faith handed down to your children. Your children need a sense of identity of who they are, where they fit in God's story. And so telling your own family stories, and of course there's many families here, so all of our family stories are going to be different. But God has been faithful and been working in all of our families, and we need to have the eyes to see that. Understanding history, whether small scale or big scale, also helps to provide us with a great deal of confidence, especially when we feel like we're in the minority or things have never been this bad before. We can look back and we can see God's pattern of working and how often he uses uh, the most disastrous events to take the next step, how he uses an underdog to take the next step. And Psalm 9 is a psalm that trains us to look to the future by remembering the past. That's the note it starts on. And you'll notice an interesting structure in the psalm. It's one of the longer ones that we've looked at so far. Um, psalm 9 and 10 are actually a pair. In the old Latin Bibles, it was one psalm counted together. Um, and it, it 
the, the lettering. It's a bit like Psalm 119 where you go through the whole Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and Psalm 9 and 10 work through that, and it's an acrostic that goes through the whole alphabet. And so it follows an interesting structure called a chiasm. A chiasm is just like an A, B, D, A structure. Okay? And so the structure here is that it starts with praise, moves to God's justice, picks up on God's justice, and moves back to praise. You see that, that pattern in here. And there's kind of two waves of that in Psalm 9. One wave is verses 1 through 12, and then again in 13 through 20. And we're going to look at not just the structure, of course, but the actual content of what uh, David is doing here and the, the praise and the remembrance he gives to God. And so it starts, To the choir master, according to Muthlaban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of your wonderful deeds. And so these introductions to the psalms have helped to provide us with context in a number of them because it, it tells us what's happening, what we're about to read. And so again here we're confronted, well, what's Muthlaban? Uh, and quite literally, it means upon the death of a son. And so some commentators have variously suggested different things, uh, that the psalm may have been written after the death of Goliath, or after the death of Nabal, or after the death of Absalom. These have all been proposed. Uh, but other commentators, such as Matthew Henry, I think are probably correct, excuse me, when they suggest that this isn't in reference to just one single death, but it's, it's a reference to a kind of a dirge or to a kind of a tone of the music uh, that's going to be right for the occasion. And David starts this song on a note of praise, right? And some of the psalms we've looked at have started with anguish or they've started with turmoil or with a, a great need that David brings to the Lord. This one starts on a note of praise. David wants to recount all of the Lord's wonderful deeds. And the initial tone of this psalm is important because it shows that by recalling what God has already done in the past, we can have confidence as we look back now as we turn to the future, that he is also likewise going to be faithful in the future. And for myself personally, I don't know if you're like me or not, but for me personally, as my love of Scripture, as my understanding of Scripture hopefully continues to grow and deepen, uh, together with that is a love and appreciation for history. Not just the history in the Bible, but the history of God's church after the Bible. These two are connected because by, the Bible gives us a a reference or a frame of reference or kind of a, a lens to see all of history through. And I think as Christians, we would be wise uh, to inculcate that in our own children, that uh, history is God's story of what he is doing. Especially as we live in a time that is radically divorcing itself from history. There's many kids who are not at all interested in their grandparents' stories. We're happy to just throw off all the customs and all the norms that the collective centuries of wisdom have built up for us. And we even treat the Bible this way sometimes, right? So often we treat the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, like it's, you know, the Professor Emeritus, if you've ever gone to university, the old senile guy that gets to keep an office because he put in his years of service. He's not really relevant anymore, but we keep him around here because in the past he did some important stuff, right? Often Christians treat their Old Testament that way. It's just the, it's the Word of God Emeritus, yeah, it was great while it lasted, but now you can just go there and we'll just be New Testament Christians. And the Bible knows nothing of such a, a carving up. Think of this. If you just dropped your New Testament in someone's lap, how much sense would it make without the foundation being built up of the Old Testament, what God has done, and all the types and shadows, all the, the stories of God's faithfulness to his people, how much sense would it make if you just had the New Testament and it just dropped in your lap? It wouldn't make any sense, hardly at all. Okay? 
So again, this shows our respect for remembering, of seeing the stories of what God has been doing and what he continues to do in history. And so that's important, again, in terms of us as parents teaching our children the stories, not just of our family stories, but even when we teach the Bible stories, we still can fall into a pit of treating them like they're moral tales, like they're Aesop's fables, right? What's the story of Daniel about? Well, it's about what you should eat and you need to dare to be like a Daniel. There may be some limited truth to that, but that's wrong. It's a story about what God is doing, okay? What about Joseph and his brothers? Is that just a story how you should get along with your brother? Well, you should get along with your brother, but it's a story about God's faithfulness, God's providence of moving things along. And so even there, we need the eyes of faith to see that history isn't just a bunch of moral stories. It's a, it's a big story that God is telling about what he is doing. We need the eyes to see this so we can even teach the Bible stories correctly to our children. We need to see all these stories as little breadcrumbs along the trail leading us up to Jesus and not just as Aesop's fables for Christians. And on that vein, that's why once we're done with Psalms, we want to move into a series on Matthew because Matthew is very intentional about connecting the life and ministry of Jesus to the Old Testament. All the types, all the shadows, the laws, and so that is going to be our next series here moving into fall to hopefully give us an appetite for how Old and New Testament are one combined story of God, one united story. So David starts here, where we often need to start in our own private devotional lives, as we think through theological questions in the church life and in our family worship, is that thanksgiving is rooted in the way God has worked through history. In verses 2 and 4, it says, I will be glad and exalt you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High God. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. And so again here, we see that our true satisfaction can only come ultimately from God. God made us. God made us for himself. And so the only way we will be happy is when we find our purpose in living for God. That's what you're designed to do, and things work best when they work according to design, according to instruction. So we were created as an overflow of the love and the pleasure and the delight that the Trinity had in itself The members of the Trinity were so in love with each other, so overjoyed at being God, that they burst forth in creation so that they had an audience to enjoy God with himself. That's what you're for. That's what this world is for, is an overflow of God's love of himself. You're an audience. Enjoy him. See him. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is wonderful. Many of you are familiar with it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you're here for. Bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. There's nothing wrong with you finding enjoyment provided it's in the right thing. So the man who would be truly happy will have, have to root his happiness in God, like David does, or else he will not find it at all. And David here is glad and able to exalt and sing praise to God because he has seen who God is. And then he can understand who he is. Kenan, last week, reminded us of this glorious truth. You cannot understand who you are until you understand who God is. Man exists in relation to God. So if you want to understand yourself, start with God. Okay? Don't, start, don't get deeper into yourself. Start with God, then understand who you are. Then you can understand what your life is all about. What are you here for? What's the meaning of this? Start with God, not yourself. And David knows this. Through many struggles, through many trials, uh, he has learned this lesson. 
And because he knows who God is, he is also able to see the way God has been moving history forward with a specific goal in mind. There's a specific end in God's mind. And David's able to see it, at least in part. David knows that it's not because of his own superior military strength or strategy, but because God's purposes will stand. They stand now, they have always stood, and they will continue to stand for eternity. That's where David's confidence is in. And he says that God has maintained his just cause. And again, this isn't because God is on David's side, like some kind of a shaman or a charm, that you you hang something up in your car mirror and that's going to give you good luck, right? God's not just a strong good luck charm for whatever my causes are. The reason God is upholding David's cause is because David is on God's side. (laughs) David is God's man, okay? So God doesn't exist to serve us like a good luck charm, like a rabbit's foot or whatever you want to use. Uh, Rather, if you want... uh, If you want God to be on your side, the way to do that is for you to be on God's side, to see his purposes. You need to get caught up in his purposes. That is what it means for God to be on your side, okay? God does his purposes. We get in line with that. And then you start to see everyday, ordinary occurrences, how you start to see God's providence working in these things. We've talked lots about that in Sunday school. Uh, We talked some more about it today. How does God's providence work? How does it work in everyday life, in our normal mundane things? One way that Martin Luther described this uh, was, was this. When you see a young girl on a stool milking a cow, it's as though God himself is milking that cow. Well, what did he mean? Was Martin Luther some kind of Buddhist? He'd been hanging out with John Lennon and Paul McCartney too much, and now he's got this Buddhist view of the world, and so like God is a girl and this girl is God. No, no, not at all. Not at all. What Luther was seeing is that in these ordinary, everyday things, God's providence is in and under and through normal things. If a girl is milking a cow, that is God making sure you have milk on your table tomorrow morning. That's how God's providence works. It's organic, it's earthy, it's natural, it's common. God is pleased to work through normal, everyday things in David's life and in yours. Okay, And some have mistakenly taken uh, this view that God's high sovereignty or God's high providence, which we want to eagerly proclaim and affirm as a church, uh, and some see this as a kind of cold fatalism, like the story of Oedipus. Does anyone remember the Greek story of Oedipus? Where uh, a prophecy is given to him that says he's going to end up marrying his own mother. And so Oedipus spends his entire life getting away from that prophecy, and everything he does gets him lined up so that he ends up marrying his mother. Okay? That's Greek fatalism. No matter what you do, the outcome is unrelated to whatever you do. So uh, if we all go to the left side of the ship, it's going to sink. If we all run to the right side, it's going to sink. It's going to sink no matter what. It's just outcomes divorced from everyday life. And that's not at all how the providence of God works. God connects things naturally and organically, sowing and reaping. How is God going to make sure we all have food to eat this winter? Well, because farmers put seed in the ground. Farmers got their cows bred on time. Farmers were feeding their chickens. That's how God will take care of us, right? And we need eyes to see that. God is working through those things, even if they seem ordinary. Moving on in verse 5 and 6, David says, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And so here we see the psalmist highlighting God's supremacy, not just over Israel, but over the nations. And many of us have been probably deeply impacted in our own time in Christian thought by what's 
called a radical two kingdoms theology. And in this theology, essentially what Christians are claiming is that God has one kingdom of the church and of you. Okay? And so that's where God is, that's where his rule and his reign are. But the rest of the world, God is unconcerned with. Okay? It's just doing its own stuff. And God's out of it. And so everyone is autonomous out there. God's only concerned about your own personal piety and about the church. And I don't think that fits with the fact that God clearly presents himself as a ruler, not just of Israel, but of the nations as a whole. Okay? Radical two kingdoms thinking uh, makes stunted Christians. It makes us think that the Christian life is somehow divorced from reality. Right? And you hear this all the time. Uh, if, If people want you know, just laws, if people are lamenting the decay of our society, uh, many Christians are quick to say, well, what else would you expect? That's just the way it's going to be, right? Rulers just act autonomously. They're not Christians. What else do you expect? Well, clearly, if God's ruler over the nations, he expects his standards to be upheld, (laughs) okay? If God was only the ruler over Israel that he had covenanted himself with, and these other nations were not Uh, responsible to him, not accountable to him, why would David say stuff like this, that he's ruler of the nations? Why would God hold Nineveh or Assyria to account? They're not Israel, right? God holds them to account because he's God. They're his nations. God is superior over all the nations, not just Israel. And today, it is no different. God is ruler of all. God is supreme over all. So there's no part of life or of the map or anything that you can carve off and say, well, that's That's outside the kingdom of God. God doesn't care about that stuff. God cares about everything because it's his universe. And so we need to uh, move away from this thinking that would carve up the world as though God doesn't really care about certain aspects. David sees that God is ruler of the nations. He's the judge of the nations. In biblical, and I, I mentioned this, that in biblical history, God does covenant himself to Israel in a way that he doesn't to other nations. But clearly, these other nations are still accountable to God. And if and when they violate God's standards of holiness, they are judged. They don't get a free pass because they're not Israel. God has made the wicked to perish, and he has blotted out their names, it says here. And think of that. If you have a pronouncement that you're the end of the road, that's it. Your whole family is wiped out after you. There's nothing future. Uh, It would seem sad. Right? To be in a, in a dying thing where you're the last one. There's no one after me, uh, whether that's in your family, whether that's in a church, whether that's in a nation. It would be a sad thing to see that your memory is going to be blotted out. And yet here, that is the warning. <clears throat> if the wicked perish, we also know that there is no future in sin or in rebellion against God. And David sees that because David has aligned himself with God's purposes. He knows there is a future for him, but he knows that the wicked will be blotted out forever. There is no future in rebellion against God. And so for all the talk today that usually comes as a criticism against us Christians, that we're on the wrong side of history, really in a biblical lens, zoom out far enough. The only way you can be on the wrong side of history is to remain in your war against God. That's the only way you can be on the wrong side of history. We need to think bigger about history than we do. God's purposes stand, uh, and rebellion, ungodliness, always burns itself out. It has no future. And while this principle isn't hard to see in the history contained in the Bible, it also holds true after the history of the Bible. This morning we talked about some of the early controversies in the church, uh, and some of the men who, uh, against all odds, stood firm and uh, proclaimed biblical truth. 
and we remember their names, right? Today, everyone knows Charles Spurgeon, right? Probably almost everyone here has heard of Charles Spurgeon, his great Baptist preacher. Everyone loves Charles Spurgeon. They've read his devotionals, great preacher, great evangelist. What you maybe don't know is that Charles Spurgeon was excommunicated by the British Baptist Union. Okay? They, they wanted to go liberal, and Spurgeon said, no, I will not quit proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. I will not quit proclaiming the inerrancy of Scripture. And he was censured by the British Baptist Union by a vote of 2,000 to 7. Now I'll ask you, who knows the names of any of those 2,000? Has God blotted out their memory? Yes, he has. Because they were wicked men filling pulpits. Of course he blotted out their memory. There's no future in unbelieving churches. Who do we remember? Charles Spurgeon. This is how it works. Remember, uh, we remember the, the, the kingdom of Israel, David's kingdom. And what about all the nations around them? They've been blotted out. They've been destroyed. God has put them to shame and has blotted out their memory forever. <clears throat> so this is true both in the Bible and outside of the Bible, in your own life. There is no future in unbelief. And so we tend to remember our heroes of the faith and not the ones who are rejecting biblical orthodoxy. And that should help also give us courage as we pass the faith on in an unbelieving world to our children today. Do it with confidence. Don't white-knuckle this thing. Do it with confidence. God is faithful. Right? We read this morning that uh, he will hold the sins for three or four generations, but how many generations is he faithful to those who love him? To a thousand generations. And for her sense of perspective, uh, since the time of Jesus, this world is only about 50 generations old. <laughs> Okay? I'm, I'm not stuck on a thousand literal generations, but to give us a sense of time, the church is 50 generations old and God has promised to be faithful to a thousand generations. Do it with confidence. Yes, you might be the only one in your extended family who's teaching your kids this way. Yes, maybe your kids are the only ones in their school or in their peer group that's doing this. But faithful remembering, faithful retelling of history, of God's righteous acts, knowing that there's no future in unbelief will help us hand that faith off confidently to our children and to our grandchildren and, Lord willing, to a thousand generations. So do it with gladness because we know, as verse 6 says, for the ungodly, the memory of them has perished. They're the ones without a future. In verses 7 and 8, we move on. It says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And so we know as Christians, of course, that no earthly conflict or power or circumstance can challenge God's place of supremacy. No ideas, no matter how popular or influential they become, will alter the real justice that God has built into his creation. The world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as David will later proclaim in Psalm 24. So God's standards are not arbitrary, they're not whimsical, they're not subject to change like so many of our standards and shifting sands. God is stable. God is there. God is a rock through history that we can call on. And this can be an incredible source of peace to us. Right? When we think about ultimate justice, in the end, nobody can or will escape justice. Every lie, every act of abuse, all violence, all immorality, everything will be set straight. And when we see the injustice and the inadequacy of our own human attempts at justice in this life, and it doesn't always work out, we may despair, we may give up, we may become pessimists. But we Christians know that God sees everything, and in the end, he will settle every score perfectly. 
Everything, every last detail comes out perfectly. There's no remainder. There's no loose ends. Everything is tied up perfectly. And when we can see that that's the way God is uh, governing history, we can have great confidence as Christians. Verses 9 through 12 says that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, O Lord. <clears throat> have not forsaken those, you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And how often, again, when you read through your Bible, do you see God's heart for the afflicted? He's got a heart for the widow and for the orphan and for the childless. He hears them in a special way. God is close to brokenhearted people. And the reason we are commanded to care for these people as Christians, for the brokenhearted, for the bereaved, for older people, that we give them dignity, is because this is a reflection of God's character. This is the kind of God we serve, and therefore we need to reflect that in the way we treat these people. And it says, God is on his throne in Zion, which is his holy hill in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God gives visible representation of where he lives. First in the tabernacle, or pardon me, first in the tent, uh, and then finally in the, in the temple, and now through his church across the world. But we know even this isn't the full picture. These are symbols to help us understand and get a sense of God's presence. But we know he is enthroned above. He is above everything. And so there's two truths that we see when we read psalms like this or any scriptures like this, is that there's two, uh, two true things we can say about God. One is that he is transcendent. He is above all. He is governing all. He is ruler of all. He is unshakable, unchanging, never learning, never changing his mind, ruling the, the, the affairs of men with an iron rod. This is true. And God is close to the brokenhearted. God hears the widow crying at night. God loves the orphan. God loves the sick. God loves the aged person. He is imminent. Okay, these things are both true. God is transcendent and God is imminent. He is high up and he is close at hand. And you see both of these truths in these very verses. We see the transcendence of God. He is above all. <clears throat> he is a stronghold. It says he's enthroned and he avenges blood. That is a picture of this high and majestic, sovereign, transcendent God. But what else do we see? We also see that he does not forsake those who seek him. He is mindful. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He is close at hand. He is tender. He binds up the afflicted. And so like all attributes of God, if we try to separate them from one another, we end up with a distortion. Either we may end up with a God who is cold and distant and uncaring on the one hand, or we end up with the relational beanbag chair God that's so popular today that he just does whatever. He, there's no standards. He's just your buddy and, and whatever else. And these are both distortions. If we, were to me, if we are to remain faithful, we must remember all of God's ways, all that he says about himself, without picking and choosing. And because he is who he is, he is both high and lifted up, and yet also close and personally involved in your unique situation, David is able to tell his hearers in verse 11 that we should sing praises to the Lord and tell among the peoples his deeds. And this involves an element of us remembering, and that's the main point here again, is that we remember God's ways so we can see who he is, that we tell stories, family stories and Bible stories. <clears throat> when we 
When we look at the expansion of God's kingdom through history, it has to be true that he has both the power to move all the pieces to that end and that he is also able to personally graft each person in one renewed heart at a time. And again, if we want to think about history as Christians, we need to interpret history theologically. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's one view of history, and probably the way we most commonly think of history, is that the beginning determines the end, right? So this person comes to power, he has friction with this guy, it results in a war, the map gets redrawn this way, and then it results in this, this, and this, right? The, the beginning determines the end. So history is moving from front to back. There's another way to view history, and I think as Christians, we need to learn this. The end determines the beginning, okay? Look at history backwards. What is God doing? Where's this going? And then you can start to see properly what's he doing right now. Where's this going? What's he doing, okay? Uh, And maybe you can scale this down to your own life. Uh, We live our lives that way too, where the future determines the past. If I want to go fishing tomorrow, I need to get my trolling batteries charged today which means I need to be out of the barn a bit earlier, so I'm going to start chores a bit sooner. See that? The future determines the past. Okay? That's on a small scale. With God, that's everything. God is telling who he is through history, and so, of course, the end determines the steps along the way. Okay? Uh, if, and we talked about that again this morning in Sunday school. If God has determined to have eternal bliss with himself and with his saints in glory in a new heaven and a new earth, that means a bunch of people have to be redeemed. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means he has to send a savior. Well, what does that mean? That means I need to put a bunch of breadcrumbs through the Old Testament story so people know the kind of savior that's coming, right? So God uh, determines the steps based on the outcome. And as Christians, we need eyes to see that. No suffering is just isolated and divorced from what God is doing in your life. It's all as steps to get you to glory. It's for your good. And that's why we have the promise of Romans 8, 28, right? And we often repeat that. That all things work together for good to those who love the Lord who are called according to his purpose. Right? The reason we can say that is because God is faithful in the story. He's faithful through history. So Christian view of history involves far more than simply affirming that God sees everything or that he knows the future. A Christian view of history has every last detail being written by God from before the foundation of the world. And it's all moving towards a set goal. And again, this helps to underscore the point of remembering, seeing history, seeing how God is working, telling those stories, remembering with family devotions at our children, teaching. Lord willing, we'll have Sunday school here for the kids one day uh, and learning those stories and how important it is to get us to the picture of Jesus. Moving on in verse 13 and 14, it says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. And here again, David is highlighting God's closeness and his tenderness. He's asking for grace in the middle of a very difficult problem. And he's even hinting at his possible death here. But because God has been faithful to David in the past, David fully expects him to be faithful again in the present and in the future. So he anticipates a salvation And recounting God's praises before he delivers, that's how expectant he is. He is praising God before the deliverance. God has yet to deliver, but David is already looking forward to how he will be able to praise God after delivery. And we need those eyes as well. Start praising God for his deliverance even before he delivers you, because you know he will. 
It may not look the way you ask. It may not look the way you expect, but he will deliver. God is faithful. Verses 15 and 16 say that the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment, and the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And so again, in his present trouble, David is committed to remembering all the past time that God has helped deliver his people. And invariably, God uses the plans of the enemy against themselves in order to contrast his wisdom with the foolishness of man. And no doubt you can see this at a personal level in your life as well, or in the stories of the Old Testament. We've gone over many of them. But I couldn't help but think of this again this week. Uh, Everyone has been affected by inflation. Things are getting expensive. Things are getting expensive. So what do we do? How do we fix it? Well, let's give everybody a free check to help make things more affordable. What's the stupidest thing you could possibly do when there's inflation is put more money to chase after a fixed amount of goods. That's how we are. We have not learned. We do not learn. We will not learn apart from the grace of God. We are, we are destroying ourselves with policies that are going to make our existing problems worse. We are no different. We don't learn. That's just one example. But surely you can scale that into your own life as well. How do you do things that are just making your problems worse rather than getting to, to the root to fix the problems? That's what we need to do. Uh, and again, God's enemies, their evil turns in on themselves. If we align ourselves with God's purposes, we can expect to be delivered. Delivery is sure. Lastly, in 17 through 20, it says that the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. In the Old Testament, Sheol in Hebrew is the same concept that we read about Hades in the New Testament in Greek. And it can be a reference to hell, to the place of punishment, uh, but also frequently it's just a reference to death, going into the heart of the earth. So all departed souls go to Sheol or to Hades in one sense. But either way, we see the ultimate demise again of those who live for their own glory instead of for God's. And so this is true of the wicked people that are referenced here, as well as nations that refuse to bend the knee to God. And so like many of the truths of Scripture, they are just as true whether you zoom into your personal life or whether you zoom out and look at this from the standpoint of world history. It's just as true. And unlike the nations and the people that forget God, the needy and the poor will not suffer forever. Their case is before God, and God will hear them, and he is intent on delivering salvation to these people. Evil men cannot prevail, and God will judge perfectly. And so again, we need to make application when we see uh, what we see in a psalm like this. How important remembering is, trusting God for his salvation, even when things look grim, even when things look like they're stacked against us. Okay? Let's not just spiritualize this, let's make it practical in our own lives. And we often spiritualize scripture so that it ends up being a story about pie in the sky, sweet by and by, right? Uh, But there's more to it than that. The Bible is earthy, it's organic, it's natural, it's very this-worldly in many ways. And so we can see that men, including everyone, every man and woman and child in this room, are accountable to God. God's laws aren't just some abstraction that we try to shoot for, but we see that they are fixed standards through all creation. 
And you see that when men try to break God's laws, God's laws don't do anything. They're just there. They're fixed, immovable. What happens when we break God's law? You break against God's law. I break against God's law. God's laws are not going anywhere. You hit them, you shatter. Okay? This is how it works. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, men come, men go, maps get redrawn, companies get bought out, land changes hands, but God remains constant. And all of this can make life seem futile and meaningless if we don't have a picture of what God is doing, if we're not seeing history properly. The futility can look like it's overwhelming or like it's real, but it's not. God gives eyes to those who see. Okay? He gives ears to those who love him, to those who seek him. And then we can see how God is working all things for his glory and for our ultimate good. And then let's be faithful to teach our children well, teach our grandchildren well, read scripture, tell the story of David, and also tell the story about your grandma, whatever she did, however God was faithful to her. Okay, we're instructed of that in the Bible. As you, and this doesn't have to be an awkward thing. Just every day, you're driving to a hockey practice, you're talking at supper. Just It's a normal part of life, reminding our children how God is faithful, how his purposes always prevail, and how there is total futility in any life apart from him. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you that you are faithful. You were faithful to David. You were faithful to the patriarchs of old. You are always faithful to your people. Lord, and you are faithful... Uh, to each one who has put their trust in you today. Lord, and we pray for each one here. Lord, we want to trust that each one here has put their trust in you if there are those who have not. Lord, grant them a repentant heart that they would uh, repent of their sin, that they would turn and trust in you for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. Lord, help all of us to see how you have been faithful at the macro scale and at the micro scale. And give those of us who are parents, especially us as fathers, Lord, to lead our families well to be bold and to be courageous and to teach our children by example and by word that there is no future in running against you, of running from you or of trying to wage war against you. Lord, there is a bright future for those who would submit to you, to your laws. Lord, give us eyes to see how you always deliver, how you always care for us, how you are always consumed by a passion and a zeal for your own glory and for our eternal good. Lord, give us eyes to see that and give us eyes to practice it as we walk out this week and every other. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, the charge is this. History exists because God created. This creation isn't the product of time and chance, but is the theater in which God displays his glory to a watching audience. This means that for us to understand ourselves, our circumstances, justice, and the meaning of events, We need to see it through the lens of God's purposes. History is not blind, but is on a singular mission to work out God's intentions perfectly, with no remainder and no wasted details. We don't get to see the future, but we have been adopted into the family of the God who does, and so it is important for us to pay attention to what's happening, to remember how God has been faithful in the past, and then to keep retelling these stories so we can encourage ourselves and our hearers for the future. If your desire is to see God glorified and to enjoy him forever, you cannot end up on the wrong side of history. God is powerful enough to execute his plans perfectly and just at the right time, and he is close enough that he hears our cries and our prayers when life is difficult. 
So as you go out into another week full of challenges, victories, setbacks, and joys, go out with the eyes of faith. See God in it all, and then spill over with joy and anticipation as you remember together with your friends, with your children, and with your church. And now receive the benediction from number 6, 24 and 26. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And go in peace.